Burke Parsons, in his book called Assured by God, tells of an interesting man by the name of John Duncan. He was regarded as one of the most holy men there were in the place of Scotland, and uh, that Scotland in some ways that people would say ever produced at the beginning of the 19th century. His vast learning of the languages for this man, John Duncan, earned him the nickname Rabbi. In fact, one former student remembered that when we looked at what they called the rabbi, he said, we all felt there is the best evidence of Christianity. And, and this student went on to say, and the best evidence that there is such a thing as living godliness. And so as they looked at this man, that's what they considered. This is the evidence of living godliness. But despite this, Duncan is also remembered for his lifelong struggle to gain assurance of salvation, a struggle that no doubt absorbed a considerable portion of his spiritual energy and deprived him of much joy. He struggled with the assurance of salvation. And I have found as a pastor over the years that Many people confuse eternal security with assurance of salvation. Let me see if I can just make a note here as we dive into John chapter 6. Eternal security, when I say eternal security, I think you're thinking with me that biblical doctrine that our salvation in Christ is eternally secure. That those who come to Christ are in Christ, have their sins forgiven, are not only saved, but we say eternally secure. In that sense, we are guaranteed of a future salvation. But eternal security is a positional truth. It is based on the work of Christ. It is based on the word of God. But the assurance of salvation, your assurance is what I would call, generally speaking, a practical truth that is experienced. It is based, assurance, on the direction of your life. If you're heading toward Christ as a walk of obedience, then you have assurance. But if your life is continually headed away from Christ, you will lack assurance. When you move away from Christ with volitional sins and the direction of your life is consistently headed away from Christ, away from his word, then you're going to lack assurance. Let me see if I can just take a moment as we come into John chapter 6 and explain maybe the difference between eternal security and assurance of salvation. In fact, I've put it on a graph there. Eternal security is a positional truth. It's what the Scripture promised you in coming to Christ. Assurance of salvation is really a practical truth. Eternal security is both the Father's ministry, we can certainly add in that column, the Son's ministry, who will never let anyone snatch you out of His hand. On the other hand, assurance of salvation is the Holy Spirit's ministry. In other words, he's encouraging you through the word of God, by the spirit of God, of your assurance. 
Eternal security is for all true believers. Assurances of salvation is for all obedient believers. In other words, if you're disobedient, you're not going to have assurance. But here, eternal security is once for all. When you come to Christ, those who are truly saved are, are eternally secure. But the assurance of salvation is ongoing. You could be walking with Christ this week, but as soon as you step into college or high school, you could make some wrong decisions and lose that ongoing nature of assurance. Eternal security is fact. We're going to look at that theme today in John 6. Often, generally speaking, assurance of salvation is a feeling. It doesn't have to be, but it often is. Here, eternal security is a reality. Assurance of salvation is a realization. So our salvation, beloved, is held secure because of the work of Christ, yes. But we experience the reality of our salvation because the Spirit is manifesting Himself through your heart and through your lifestyle. Now the good news is is that John wrote this gospel that we would be certain of our salvation. And our theme from the Word of God this morning is is the security of the believer, the eternal security of the believer. So I make a distinction. That's our theme. We're not looking at assurance. We preach through that in 1 John. We're looking this morning in John 6 at the eternal security of the believer. But here's the question for you this morning. How do you know that you will continue to be a Christian throughout your life? Well, what's that based on? When we speak of eternal security, why do we speak of it as such? And let me also just say, when I speak of eternal security, many of you sitting in this auditorium did not grow up with that doctrine. In fact, I would say much of Christianity has not grown up with that doctrine. You might have grown up in a system that said, you're a Christian now, but you can lose it. You're a Christian now, but if you stop walking with the Lord, you can lose it. Or as one man in our church told me that a circle was drawn, and as the circle was drawn in Sunday school many years ago, black dots used to appear on the circle, and the black dots represented sin. And if you sin too much, and the black dots begin to fill the circle more than the white spaces, then you could very well lose your salvation. You can imagine as a young boy what kind of fear that would put in your heart. And I think maybe because of my own background, struggling with eternal security and not being in Christ, I mentioned before that I've thought about this truth every day for a couple years in my teenage years. How do you know that you'll continue to be a Christian throughout your life? What basis do you have for that? Is there a guarantee that keeps you from falling away from Christ? Is there a guarantee that ensures that we will be with God in heaven forever? In fact, I'd like to ask you this morning is, are you secure right now in Christ? Are you eternally secure? You say, well, um, pastor, I don't know if, if I could know that. Oh, sure, you could know that. Because it says in 1 John 5.13, these things we have written to you that you may know you have eternal life. In fact, you should know on the basis 
of Scripture and what your hope is and what your trust is in that question. But I ask you this morning, are you eternally secure? So open your Bible to John chapter 6. And we come to that famous discourse that we've been looking at um, of Jesus on the bread of life. And we are examining in John chapter 6, running from verses 30 to 40, five bold declarations that highlight the nature of our salvation and our eternal security. These declarations are highlighting the nature of our salvation and our eternal security. Now, we've looked at the first four. We looked in verse 30 at the demand of a sign. You remember that in 30 and 31. After he had fed the 5,000 men, they said to him in chapter 6, in verse 30, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They demand a sign. It should have been enough what they've been watching him do, but they demand a sign. They make a declaration of that. But then Christ, in 32 through 34, began to develop the Scripture. And he said to them, It was not Moses in 32 who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father that gives you the true bread from heaven. And he began to develop the Scriptures and correct their understanding of the Scripture. And then finally, in that great declaration, in verse 35, He disclosed himself, and that's the theme. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so he discloses himself. He discloses himself in that I am statement. There's seven of them throughout John's gospel. But here would be the first. I am. And that's a designation for deity in the Old Testament in Isaiah and in Exodus chapter 3 and all over actually. And just as Yahweh said that I am who I am, Jesus is now making that declaration and then attaching it, if you will, to a metaphor as a way of salvation that he is the bread of life. But the truth is, as John unfolds his gospel, not all trust Christ. Even though he discloses himself, they don't all trust him. And that led to the disbelief, the fourth declaration of the sinners in verse 36. Look at it. He said, but I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe me. And so it led to the disbelief. You've seen me. But in your will, in your decision, and in your processing of this opportunity, you do not believe, and we looked at that, the disbelief of sinners. And yet, beloved, I want you to catch the flow. Despite their disbelief, here's what's important. Jesus does not lose his joy. He doesn't lose his joy. I mean, you would think that he's come into the world as the light, that he's come into the world as the Son of God, that he's come into the world as God himself, that the Word became flesh, that the disbelief of sinners would be discouraging to him, but it's not. In fact, it's fascinating to watch this in John's Gospel. His joy is not tied to the response of the crowd. His joy is tied to a sovereign God who is at work in the elect. That's where his joy is. In fact, that led to the fifth and final declaration. 
which is our purpose this morning. It is the determination of his sovereignty. So even though they disbelieve the message, he's not, he doesn't lose hearts. You say, well, why not? Well, because of the determination of his sovereignty. And remember, we just touched on that last week in 537. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is a declaration by our Lord on our eternal security. It's that statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, those whom God elects to salvation will in fact be with Christ in heaven. That is a theological statement there in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me, Jesus said, will come to me. And in verse 37, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the theme of Scripture. Glance down at chapter 6, verse 39. He said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. In other words, God the Father, within the Trinity, Trinity, purposed before the foundation of the world to give the Son a love gift of those men and women who are his elect. That's what the Scripture says in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Verse 39, I shall lose lose nothing of all that he has given to me. Look down at chapter 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in this fact, I will raise him up on the last day. Look over at chapter 6 and verse 65. He said there in this sovereignty that no one can come to me unless it has been granted by the Father. I mean, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. Look over at John chapter 10. I'm just building this up for just a moment. In John chapter 10, here is our eternal security. And you'll notice there in 1028, it's not the Father who gives to the Son, but here the Son says in 1028, I give them eternal life. Stop there just for a second. He is the source of life, so He is the giver of life. Whoever comes to Christ experiences eternal life. It makes sense that if he's the source of life in 521, then he's also the giver of life. And in 520, excuse me, and in 1028, where he says there, he says, I give them eternal life. And here's the confidence. Look at it in verse 28. And they will never, what? Perish. In other words, if the Father, beloved, gave you as a love gift to the Son before the foundation of the world, then here the promise is, you will never, what? Perish. That's eternal security. Look at 1028. And no one will snatch them out of my hand based on the authority of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. My Father, there's that statement again, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My father's hand. Look over at John 17 just for a moment. I'm building this as we here reveal this point, the determination of his sovereignty. But in John 17, 2, 
he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give, this is the Father giving to the Son eternal life to all whom you have given him. That is eternal security. That is the sovereignty of God at work in salvation. He, he if you will, the Son receives those whom the Father has given to him. That is, look over at chapter 17 and verse 6. He says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are in 17.6. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Look at 17 verse 9. I am praying for them because I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look down in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. So, beloved, this is the declaration of a sovereignty. The son does not lose his joy over the disbelief. Why is that? Because there's been a determination made by God of those who the father gave to the son. We call that the doctrine of election. And we define election as such, it is the act of God before the foundation of the world in which he chooses some people to be saved. And he does that not on the account of any foreseen merit in you, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. There it is. He chooses some to be saved Not on any foreseen merit that you did or I did, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So those whom the Father gave to the Son, those whom are elect. Now listen, we must hear the gospel. I must hear the gospel. People must hear the gospel. You must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You must respond in faith and repentance that are gifts. God forgives you, certainly. He places you in his family. But it all begins from all eternity with the Father giving to the Son a love gift. All the Father gives to me will come to me. The Father chooses and appoints salvation, as we've just said in verse 37. The Son then, within the Trinity, receives those whom the Father has chosen. The Father, verse 44, must draw the sinner to himself then what the Son does is secures and holds on to those whom the Father has given. And then the promise is to you is that the Son will raise those who have been chosen to eternal glory. This is the teaching of the Scripture. All who are saved are a love gift from the Father to the Son. All of the doctrine of redemption is a calling out of believers by the Father given to the Son as a love gift so that all the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ. Now, beloved, this is the teaching of Scripture. Look at some of these Scriptures that I just want to put here. Those who were born, right? The previous verse says, right? All who have received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. We know that one and we love that one. But the next verse is this, who were born. And obviously, he's not talking about physical birth who were born again, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of what? God. He's the sovereign agent in causing one to be born again. Romans 9.16 says, So then it does not depend 
he says, on human will or exertion, but on God who has what? Mercy. It's dependent on God. Look at the next slide. Put on then, and these are just language that I'm showing you in Scripture, as God's what? Chosen ones. That Greek term, that English term that you're looking at there is a term that speaks of God's election. It speaks of God's sovereignty. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness and humility. Paul used the word this way in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has what? Chosen you. I think in modern day theology, we've got a lot of people choosing Christ, so they think. But the reality is, within the sovereign counsel of the Trinity, God has chosen you. This is the teaching of Scripture. You say, well, pastor, I don't know if I like that. Well, listen, you may not like it, but this is what the Word of God says. And you're always going to hear it straight here in our church. Look at the next slide. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God, what? He chose you. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that before the foundation of the world, the Father had you in His mind and heart and will and chose you before the creation of the world. Look at Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, it came to the Jew first. They, the Gentiles, began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, what did they do? They believed. As many were appointed. You mean there's some that are appointed? That's what it says. As many that were appointed to eternal life believed. In fact, it goes on. And I'm just highlighting a few of them. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. I mean, it's a radical thought. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, when, when Jesus said back in John 6, all that the Father has given to me, when did he do that? He chose you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, I know for some of you, you are probably hearing this for the very first time. 2 Timothy 2.10. Here's Paul's ministry. Here's why Paul was a pastor. Here's why Paul helped people. He said, I endure everything for the sake of the, what? Elect. There's another word. All the Father gives will come. Those whom God has chosen. Now, he's enduring everything for the sake of the elect. You know, it's funny. I was just encouraged in my own heart about this. A lot of people have a lot of goals. A lot of people have a lot of hobbies. A lot of people want to do things with their time and with their money. But he said in his own heart, apostolic calling of a true man of God. He says, I do everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You say, well, Scott, I think they already came to Christ. Yes, but they may obtain the salvation, the ultimate aspect of salvation, which is the glorification of a believer. In fact, look on on the next slide. Paul, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, which is interesting. You say, well, why? Well, I know a ton of churches who make all of their church an effort to reach out to the unbeliever. Now, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to the unbeliever. But when you begin to change the hymns 
when you begin to take the pew out of the Bible out of the pew, when you begin to do stuff up front for showy public display because you don't want to offend anybody. In fact, I read this week, the guy's no longer in ministry, but on one Easter Sunday, he's, he just got pushed out this last three weeks because of an impurity in his life. But on one particular Sunday, on Easter Sunday, he played that song by the rock group that I'm on a highway to hell. You know what song? I'm on a high, you know, you know, that grunge one. He played that. Why? Because he wanted the unbeliever to feel comfortable in his church. My point is, when I read this, Paul, apostolic ministry, any pastor called by God for the, sa- faith, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. You're here building people up. That's his apostolic ministry. And so there it is. You see that throughout and in other places. But, but watch this. Go back to John 6 now. He says this. Jesus said, all that the Father, I just want you to see this now, gives to me. Look at this next phrase. It says, it will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never, what? Cast out. Put it together, here is this. The Father gives them to the Son, and the Son promises to preserve you. And there is in the language here in verse 37 what we call a a strong double negative in the Greek. Whoever comes to me, I will never, no, never is the thought, cast out. The Son will never reject anyone to whom the Father gave to him. In fact, look back in John chapter 10. Let me show you this. In John chapter 10, I think we just touched on that. Jesus said that. He said in 1027, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never, what? Perish. Listen, your salvation is held secure by Jesus Christ who will never let you perish eternally. You have been given by the Father before the creation of the world as a love gift to the Son and the Son in His authority within the Trinity is going to never let you perish again and look at it again in 28 and no one will snatch you out of my hand and my father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand listen your salvation secure now listen if you live and dwell in a in a what I call an Arminian structure uh, not Armenian but Arminian what we would tend to say is a little bit more man-centered, then I suppose if you made the decision to come to Christ and it was your will to come to Christ and to trust Christ, and we'll talk about that in a moment, then if you made that decision, then you can lose it. But beloved, what I'm saying to you, if he had his hand on you before the foundation of the world, then the son is promising in this text to secure you all the way to the end and no one's able to snatch you out of his hand. Look over in his high priestly prayer in John 17. In John 17, in verse 11. You have to read this one slow, but it's, it's powerful. But in John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world. He's getting ready to depart, right? He said, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Watch his prayer here. Keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, here's what Jesus said, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have, Jesus said this, guarded them 
And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That, and here's why. That the scripture may be fulfilled. Listen, he's keeping you. He's guarding you. He's not letting anyone snatch you out of his hand. Now look back in John chapter 6. Because the reason that Jesus will never let you be cast out is found in the scripture. Look at it. You see it now in 638. He says in 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And here he links it here. For I, Jesus says, have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, Jesus said, I've come down in the incarnation, John chapter 1. The reason I have come down is not to do my own will, but the will of the, my father who sent me. Now, this idea of him doing the will of God, we've seen that before. Look back in John 4 just for a moment. John chapter 4, in verse 34, Jesus said to the disciples, to them, my food, he said in 434, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was his food. Look at John chapter 5. Do you remember this in verse 19? In John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Okay? In other words, the Son's only doing what the Father's will is. What the Son sees the Father doing, the the Son does. Look at John chapter 5 and verse 30. He said, I can do nothing on my own. He said, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He said later, you don't have to look at it up and in, 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 look it up in John 14, 31. I do as the Father commanded me. He said in John 17, 4, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In fact, you remember in Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as what you will. Listen, Jesus doing his Father's will is the guarantee of your eternal security. You say, well, well, how so, Scott? Look back in the text in John chapter 6. Look at it there in verse 39. He says, I came not to do my own will, verse 38, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. There you have it. Nobody, beloved, the Father has given to the Son as a love gift in eternity past, will ever be lost. The security, the eternal security of the believer rests on the choice of God and the faithfulness of His Son. This is what we call, just to build this out for you, we call this the doctrine of eternal security. The other phrase that we use for this doctrine is the doctrine of the perseverance of the what? Saints. Those are just interchangeable ways to describe that. We tend to use the word eternal security. 
Some people in the Reformed tradition used the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And the perseverance of the saints are those who are truly born again, will be kept by God forever, and will preserve until the end of their lives, and only those who, if you will, preserve until the end, have truly been born again. That is the perseverance of the saints. Now, beloved, not everybody believes this. This has been a doctrinal war in the debate categories for centuries. Many people who were of the Wesleyan tradition, the Arminian tradition, even some forms of the Baptist tradition or denomination, the Nazarenes, some of them would hold to the fact that it is possible for someone to be born again and for him or her to lose their what? Salvation. That's what they teach. And you can imagine as a young boy, if the black dots are filling up in the circle more than the white dots, it would create a lot of fear. And a lot of people live with no assurance at that point. They don't believe there's eternal security. But beloved, I'm showing you from the scripture that it is not possible for someone who's been chosen by God to ever lose their salvation, okay? All that the Father gives to Jesus as a gift will surely come to him. And whoever comes to Jesus, Jesus promises to keep and preserve. In other words, if any of them failed, God the Father or God the Son, if they failed, Carson said, to achieve this goal, it would be to the son's everlasting shame. It would mean, Carson said, that either he was incapable of performing what the father willed to do or that he was flagrantly disobedient to the father. And Carson said both alternatives are unthinkable. Listen, if you're in Christ, Romans 8.1, you know it, says there is no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've come to saving faith in Christ, if you've believed on Christ, if you've repented of your sin, then there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says, for those whom he foreknew in Romans 8, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers, brothers, and those whom he predestined he called, and those whom he called he justified and those whom he justified he also what glorified listen if you're in Christ your salvation is secure Paul said it this way in Philippians 1 6 he said I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ amen he said well Scott sometimes I don't feel that way so The fact remains. You say, well, Scott, some of you, I'm looking at your faces. I've been taught another way for 40 years. Well, I'm glad you're here because you ought to be rejoicing in what God has done. Amen. You ought to be not looking at yourself for what you do on the terms of the black dots. You ought to be looking as we come to it in a moment, the finished work of Jesus Christ who died for you. 
You ought to embrace your high position in Christ that somehow in the mind and the heart of God, he had Scott Artavanis chosen from before the foundation of the world. He chose me from a pagan family. He chose me from an absolutely pagan family. Saved my whole family at a later time. You say, well, why didn't he put you in a five-generation Christian family? I don't know. But he didn't. He chose me to come to him at 14 when I heard the message and I responded in faith. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, it says we're chosen. And he says that you were chosen, and you know these scriptures, to an inheritance that is imperishable. Pretty cool, huh? I mean, I'm just watching, I'm sure some of you people just bowing down and, and biting their, you know, uh, that's a phone, but biting their, their gold medals. He's chosen you to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, you're being guarded by God's power. You're being held by God's power. You will be held by Christ who will let no one snatch you out of his hand and God the Father will let no one snatch you out of his hand. You are guarded by God's power through faith. Jude 1, to all those who are called, and I love this little phrase, and kept for Jesus Christ. It says in Jude 24, and you know that one well, now to him who is able to, what? Keep you. You think he's going to let go of you? You think you can undo it? You say, well, Scott, some people were in it and then they went away from it and John would say they had never been, what? Of us, 1 John chapter 2. But he's not going to let go of his people. He's going to be able to keep you from stumbling. (laughs) Isn't that encouraging? Because some of you moms... You just don't know what's going to happen to our country. You don't know what's going to happen to your kids. You don't know what's going to happen to our school system. And the sheer thought of the future causes you to shake. But listen, now to him, Jude says, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before him and before his presence with great joy and glory. Listen, Our eternal security is not for a day, it's not for a week, it's not for a month, it's all the way to the very end. What God started, he will finish. Christ will never leave you or what? Forsake you. He said in the Great Commission that I am with you, what? Always. Now, if we were done there, that would be awesome. But there's one final thought. Look at verse 40. Jesus continues this declaration of his sovereignty. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. This this phrase, I will raise him up on the last day, is the final resurrection. This is not all there is, is there? When I'm looking and praying with sweet Helen Krauss, 92 years of age, we don't know when the Lord's timing is for her or for any of us. But this is just the beginning of it, is it not? 
Jesus said, I, all the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who's ever part of the Father, you are secure. No one snatches you out of the hand. And then the promise is a final future resurrection that I will raise you up on the last day. And this is not just a metaphor. He's going to raise us physically on the last day. In fact, look at it back in chapter 6 and verse 39. He says, I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but I will raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, whoever believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, we are guarded and kept to the very end. The security of the believer rests on the choice of the Father, the faithfulness of the Son's work to keep you and to preserve you. The Father gives you to the Son. The Son receives you. The Son keeps you. And then the Son will raise you up on the last day. Now, what, what, what's looming in this passage, though? One final thought. You may even struggle a little bit with what you're hearing. You're seeing it. You're grappling with it. But, and you might be hearing it for the first time. This is mature doctrine right here. Okay? But, you know, when you're committed to exposition, you're going to go through it, aren't you? That's, that's a great thing. I'm not on a hobby horse here. I just preach what comes. And then I pick it up and I preach the next week and we can't pick and choose, you know, 10 weeks on this and five weeks on this and three weeks on this and eight weeks on this. I just preach it as it comes. But what's fascinating to me, okay, in this is even though the father is choosing, Jesus goes right back in verse 40 to an open invitation of the gospel to whoever believes, and he puts the responsibility back on man. Look at verse 40. He said, for this is the will of the Father. And then watch this, that it's funny he didn't say the elect. He says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Everyone who looks. In other words... The gospel goes out. Look back in your Bible at verse chapter 5 and verse 24. We've seen these statements. It says there in 524, I say to you, whoever hears my word. Now, you know, he didn't say the elect will hear my word. He says in 524, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's what the text says. You can't get around it, can you? You have other statements of the same nature. Look at John 3. Go back there in John 3, 15. You know that. You remember that. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Look at John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Look back to John 6 in verse 35. Even though we're in a passage on his sovereignty, he said, I am the bread of life, 635. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. You say, well, Scott, how do you balance that? I don't. I shared that last week. 
I just can't balance it. You say, what do you mean balance that? How do you balance God's sovereignty in election, in choosing, in foreknowledge, and predestination? How do you balance that with the open invitation of the gospel that goes out to all people and whoever believes open invitation? I don't know how to balance that. So you say, well, what is it, pastor? Is it one or the other? Neither. It's what? It's both. It's both. You say, well, how do you explain that? I can't explain that. It's called a tension in the scriptures. And there's many tensions in the scripture. Who wrote the word of God? God did. Well, but I was in Dom's class and Paul wrote Colossians. Well, did did God write it or did Paul write it? And the answer is what? Yes. I can't explain who lives the Christian life. Do you live the Christian life? Or does God live the Christian life through you? Right? Paul even said that in Galatians 2, right? For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer what? I who live, but Christ lives what? In me. Then he comes right back and says, but the life I live by faith, I live, you know, and so forth. Then you're going back and forth. And here's the same way. God is sovereign, beloved. Man is responsible. Man is responsible to hear the gospel. He's responsible to believe. There's none of you this morning, just to be clear, who can ever say, I'm just not one of his elect. You have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. You're commanded to repent and believe in the gospel. Spurgeon put it this way. Let me bring you back to church history and then we'll be all done. He said, if then I find in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, he said, that is true. If I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can never contradict each other. He said, I do not believe that they can ever be welded into one, he said, upon any earthly anvil. But they certainly shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them furthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity uh, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. It's good, isn't it? MacArthur, I read you a little bit last week, he said this in a different quote. He said he presents, Jesus presents right here, the twin parallel truths of divine sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility. He said, this is the work of God, solely the work of God, but you will be held responsible if you do not believe. He said, and you are called to believe in eternal life. He waits you if you will believe. He said, those are twin truths that run parallel. They will always run parallel. They will never come together. They will never be diminished. They are what they are. The fact that you don't understand how they go, to go, go together only proves that, that you're less than you should be. He said, it doesn't say anything about God. He said, your inability to harmonize these things is a reflection of your fallenness, my fallenness. He said, people ask me all the time, how do you harmonize those? And my answer is, I don't. I can't. They can't be harmonized in the human mind. He said, but realize this, you are a puny mind and so am I. And collectively, we are puny compared to the infinite, vast, limitless mind of God. All I can tell you is that in the word of God, these truths run parallel. And the answer is to believe them both with all your heart. He said the one divine, so- he said the one divine sovereignty 
will inform your worship and the other human responsibility will motivate your evangelism. That's well said. Listen, here you have it in the same passage. All the Father gives to me will come to me. But whoever comes, Jesus won't cast them out. And there are both truths right there. So here you have it. Five bold declarations of Jesus is the bread of life that highlights the nature of salvation and our eternal security. Okay, listen. Can you be eternally secure? Absolutely. Based on what? Not on your life, not on your deeds. You could be eternally secure based on the finished work of Jesus Christ and the choosing of God the Father. Listen, God the Father and Christ are holding on to you. You certainly remember this, but it comes into play here. When Paul said, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Listen, the penalty has been paid in full for your sin. Listen, no disease can separate you from Christ. No act of terrorism. Are you afraid? You don't have to be afraid. No act of terrorism can separate you from the love of God. No demon can separate you from the love of God. No amount of torture can separate you from the love of God. Cancer can't separate you from the love of God. The grave can't separate you from the love of God. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And beloved, I'm just going to say, can you believe it that he, the infinite, perfect one, died in your place for your sins? All of this would not be possible apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ.